Welcome to the never-ending quest for clarity. This is Loving Liberty with Brian Hyde. Hey, welcome to the second hour of the Loving Liberty Show. Brian Hyde at your service. And yes, I will be taking calls this hour, 801-331-8113. I want to share something with you here for just a second. Just, uh, I, I know this is, this is kind of a frivolous thing, but uh, this tickled me so much. And since there's, there's not a ton of great news, I thought I would start with something that hopefully, hopefully will, uh, will give you at least a reason to smile. You ready for this? This is, this is a concerto for faucet, water pipes, and fiddle. You've got this uh, guy in a tuxedo, well, a nice suit, playing his violin next to a, a water pipe. That's the water pipe you hear humming in the background. Listen to this. So that humming's the pipe. Now listen to him adjust the water. He's tuning his violin. <laughs> oh man, I wish I wish my plumbing had that kind of a, a rhythmic hum in the pipe there. Wow. <laughs> Okay, maybe you need to see the video to fully appreciate it, but uh, I, I just thought that was hilarious. Um, look, if you've ever had a water pipe that hums or that you know has, sets up with some kind of vibration before, it can be such a pain. And yet, uh, here's this guy. I believe this is out of Poland. This uh, this uh, violinist sits there and tunes his violin and then just starts playing along with it. I just I love people who can make the best of a situation that say isn't optimal. If life handed his him lemons, I think this guy just made some of the best lemonade yet. All right. So, a couple other things going on. I want to take a minute here, and I just want to talk about the uh, the, the Trump impeachment trial. Now, yesterday, I, I think I commented on uh, th- there was something very pseudo-religious about the way that uh, that the Senate... I'm sorry, that the House walked the articles of impeachment to the Senate. And if you, if you heard the... Uh, the various commentators on the news uh, discussing it, why they talked about the ritual and the sense, the reverential senses as they made this procession through the statuary and on to the Senate. And it just made me stop and think, you know, in a, in a slightly different time, maybe just a few hundred years ago, these are the people who would have been gathering sticks to pile up around a, uh, a stake where someone would later be burned for heresy. I'm sure in, in this day they would do that if they thought they could get away with it, you know, to, to Donald Trump. But they'll have to settle for excommunicating him. I'm sorry, impeaching him. And as uh, as some of the commentators said, well, this impeachment is forever. The only thing that remains is, I guess, someday, presumably at the end of a long and happy natural life, uh, Donald Trump's uh, remains will be exhumed, burned, and then scattered on the river so that no one may ever return to his gravesite, much as it was done with some of the early heretics in uh, the Christian heritage. I mean, uh, frankly, I think they, they would make the Inquisition look almost reasonable by comparison. Now, I really don't get wrapped around the axle a lot on this. I don't feel like I have a dog in the fight, but it's very telling 
to see this this display of pseudo patriotism that uh, that is being put on by people like Nancy Pelosi and others as they tell us, you know, that this this is why they're doing this is because duty demands this. I don't know very many people who buy into it, but uh, those who are tapped into the Washington establishment seem to think, no, 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 this this is what we must do. After all, he never should have been elected in the first place. I thought Pat Buchanan had a very interesting take, and I wanted to share that with you. He calls it a malicious indictment that Mitch, meaning Mitch McConnell, should throw out. Pat Buchanan says about the impeachment of President Donald Trump, she engineered with her Democratic majority. Pelosi said Wednesday, it's not personal. It's not political. It's not partisan. It's patriotic. Seriously, he says, Madam Speaker, not political, not partisan. Why then were all eight House members chosen as managers to prosecute the case against Trump, who ceremoniously ceremoniously escorted the articles across the Capitol? Why were they all Democrats? Why did the articles of impeachment receive not a single Republican vote on the House floor? The truth? The impeachment of Donald Trump is the fruit of a malicious prosecution whose roots go back to the 2016 election in the aftermath of math of which stunned liberals and Democrats began to plot the removal of the new president. Now, he says this coup has been in the works for three years. First came the crazed charges of Trump's criminal collusion with Vladimir Putin to hack the emails of the DNC and the Clinton campaign and funnel them to WikiLeaks. Then for two years, we heard the cries of treason from Pelosi's caucus. And despite the Mueller investigation's exoneration of Trump of all charges of conspiracy with Russia, we still hear the echoes. Trump is Putin's poodle. Trump is an asset of the Kremlin. Buchanan says all we want and what the American people deserve is a fair trial. Democrats and their media collaborators now insist. But he says, can a fair trial proceed from a manifestly deficient and malicious prosecution? He says, consider in this impeachment, we are told the House serves as the grand jury and Adam Schiff's intelligence committee and Jerry Nadler's judiciary committee serve as the investigators and the prosecutors. But the articles of impeachment on which the Judiciary Committee and House voted do not contain a single crime required by the Constitution for impeachment and removal. There is no charge of treason, no charge of bribery or other high crimes and misdemeanors. So weak is the case for impeachment that the elite in this city is demanding that the Senate do the work the House failed to do. The Senate must subpoena the documents and witness the House and witnesses the House failed to produce to make the case for impeachment more persuasive than it is now. Not our job, rightly answers Mitch McConnell. Now, Pat Buchanan says the Senate is supposed to be an impartial jury. But while there is a debate over whether Republicans will vote to call witnesses, there is no debate on how the Senate Democrats intend to vote. 100% for removal of a president they fear they may not be able to defeat. Consider Trump's alleged offense, pressing Ukrainian president... Volodymyr Zelensky to investigate Burisma Holdings and Hunter Biden. Now, assume Zelensky, without prodding, sent to the U.S. as a friendly act to ingratiate himself with Trump, the Burisma file on Hunter Biden. Would that have been a crime? And why is it then a crime if Trump asked for the file? The military aid Trump held up for 10 weeks, lethal aid Barack Obama denied to Kiev, was sent. And Zelensky never held the press conference requested, never investigated Burisma, never sent the Biden file. There's a reason why no crime was charged in the impeachment of Donald Trump. There was no crime committed. Not political, said Pelosi. And Pat Buchanan says, why then did she hold up 
sending the articles of impeachment to the Senate for a month after she said it was so urgent that Trump be impeached that Schiff and Nadler could not wait for their subpoenas to be ruled upon by the Supreme Court. He says Pelosi is demanding that the Senate get the documents, subpoena and hear the witnesses and do the investigative work Schiff and Nadler failed to do. And he asks, does that not constitute an admission that a convincing case was not made? Are not the articles voted by the House inherently deficient if the Senate has to pres- if the Senate has to have more evidence than the House prosecutors could produce to convict the president of, quote, abuse of power? And he asks, can we really have a fair trial in the Senate when half of the jury, the Democratic caucus, is as reliably expected to vote to remove the president as Republicans are to acquit him? What kind of fair trial is it when we can predict the final vote before the court hears the evidence? Pat Buchanan says it's ridiculous to deny that this impeachment is partisan, political and personal. It reeks of politics, partisanship and Trump hatred. As for patriotic, well, that depends on where you stand or sit. But the forum to be entrusted with the decision of should Trump go is not a deeply polarized Senate, but those, but with those the founding fathers entrusted with such decisions, the American people. In most U.S. courts, a prosecution case this inadequate, with prosecutors asking the court itself to get more documents and to call more witnesses, and so visibly contaminated with malice toward the accused, would be dismissed outright. And so Pat Buchanan says Mitch McConnell should let the House managers make their case and then call for a vote to dismiss and treat this indictment with the contempt it so richly deserves. I don't know if that uh, if that rings the right bell with you, but I can't think of anything he's saying here that I could disagree with. Now, again, I don't I don't carry water for Donald Trump. I've been pleasantly surprised at some of the things he has done as president. I think he has proven beyond any reasonable doubt, at least to me, he's not the monster that we were warned he was going to be. But it's been sickening to watch these politicians, and it's, it's including not just the Democrats. There have been people on the Republican side of the aisle, too, who have been so determined to get this man out of office simply because they don't feel that they can control him. It just shows you how rotten the whole system has become. And actually, we're going to talk a little bit about uh, working around Leviathan. There's an excellent essay out there by Lou Rockwell. I'm going to share a couple of excerpts with you a little bit later in the program. We'll be back just the other side of these messages. This is Loving Liberty. Hey, welcome back to Loving Liberty, 801-331-8113. Special shout out to our listeners on KTalk 1640 in Salt Lake City. And of course, to everybody joining us via podcast, whatever time it may be and wherever you may be in the world, thank you so much for listening. Please feel free to share this program with anybody else who you think might benefit from, I don't know what I would call it, maybe a slightly different, less partisan point of view. I really try not to get too mired in the uh, politics tar baby, but occasionally there's stuff that uh, that is on my mind and I just have to say something. Now, I want to share with you, and I'm going to link to this in the podcast uh, when I post this up on LovingLiberty.net. There will be in the show notes a link to this article on Mises.org, M-I-S-E-S dot org, 
Working Around Leviathan. This is by Lou Rockwell Jr. And I'm only going to share a couple of excerpts because it's a very lengthy article. But let me give you a couple of excerpts here. And I just I offer this in, in the spirit of I'm not telling you that you should turn your back on politics. But Lou Rockwell makes a perfect point here about how we have more avenues to affect change or to exercise influence than simply voting. And so before you get too spun up on the idea that it's the most important election of our lifetime, hey, it may well be, but there are still so many ways that you and I can move the needle in the right direction outside of politics. And here's how he starts out. He says, here's what strikes me as a profound political paradox. The U.S. government is larger, more consolidated, more powerful, and more intrusive than it has ever been in its history. Indeed, our sweet land of liberty is now host to the most powerful Leviathan state that has ever existed. Never before has a government in human history owned more weapons of mass destruction, looted as much wealth from a country, or assumed unto itself the power to regulate the minutiae of daily life as much as this one. By comparison to the overgrown behemoth in Washington, with its printing press to crank out money for the world and its annual $2.2 trillion in largesse to toss at adoring crowds, even communist states were powerless paupers. But he says at the same time, and here's the paradox, the United States is overall the wealthiest society in the history of the world. Now, the World Bank lists Luxembourg, Switzerland, and Norway as competitive in this regard, But the statistics don't take into account the challenges to mass wealth that exist in the U.S. relative to small, homogenous states such as its closest competitors. In the United States, more people from more classes and geographic regions have access to more goods and services at prices they can afford and possess the disposable income and access to credit to put them to use than any other time in history. You ever think about that? He says, truly, we live in the age of extreme abundance. But then he asks, what is the relationship between the rise of big government and the rise of American prosperity? It seems that people on the right and the left are quick to confuse correlation with causation. They believe the U.S. is wealthy because the government is big and expansive. But he says this error is probably the most common of all errors in political economy. It's just assumed that that buildings are safe because of building codes, that stock markets are not dens of thieves because of the Securities and Exchange Commission, that the elderly don't starve and die because of Social Security, and so on. All the way to concluding that we should credit big government for American wealth. Now, here's where he goes into... Some of the economic logic, he talks about cause and effect commission. He talks about how people resist control. And this is one of the most powerful parts here, because in spite of the Leviathan that has been built up around us. People still want to have a degree of autonomy in their lives. And he says uh, there's a sense that the state is nowhere as effective as it claims. He talks about the mythology of the nation state, and there's a great history lesson in here. He talks about the age of Leviathan. And I want to share with with you, uh, there's a a thought that he offers here at the end that, that is so worthwhile. I mean, he talks about a privatized world. He talks about socialist islands, um, talks about neither welfare nor warfare. But here's here's the gist of this essay. And it'll take you some time to read it. It's, it's probably, this is a good hour-long read. Don't let that throw you off, though. 
One of the things he points out here is he points out the only real restraint against all forms of government is public opinion. A public that says no to the state is the best defense against despotism. And the best cultural and political context in which liberty grows and thrives. Now, he says, our times have taught that the world economy does not need the state. As the old liberals said, society contains within itself the capacity for self-management. Our experience in our families and communities has taught that the state does very little for our benefit. Our experience in our workplaces has taught that the state makes productivity more difficult and gives us very little to nothing in return. And I love how he puts this next part. He says, I'm often asked what an average person can do to further liberty. I say that the first and most important step is intellectual. We all need to begin to say no to the state on an intellectual level. When you are asked what you would like government to do for you, we need to be prepared to reply nothing. We should not ask it to save our children nor provide security nor give us anything at all. And this is the kicker. He says we can still be good citizens. We can be good parents, teachers, workers, entrepreneurs, church members, students, and contributors to society, to society in a million different ways. This is far more important to the future of liberty than how we vote. But he says we must regain our confidence in our capacity for self-governance. He says, I believe this is happening already. The empire is shrinking despite its every attempt to expand. Even if the public sector cannot and will not prepare for a future of liberty, we can. Let us look for and work toward the triumph of liberty unencumbered by Leviathan. Now, this is where we get into kind of an interesting conundrum. Because I, I think there are people who will agree with what he's saying. Yeah, that, that rings true. That, that sounds like it, it should be that way. But the next question out of their mouths will be, so what should we do? Tell us, Lou Rockwell. Tell us, Brian. What, what should our next step be? And I'm asking this with all the sincerity in my heart, but why are you waiting for someone else to give you direction on what your next step should be? Doesn't that kind of take away from the whole idea of self-governance? Doesn't that assume that somebody knows better than you? what the best path to happiness is in your life? Yeah, I understand there's risk. And, and I don't pretend, I do not have all the answers. I don't think Lou Rockwell has all the answers. But at some level, if you are determined to live as a free, self-actuating individual, if you are determined to be self-governing, to not need that outside influence of big mother or big brother leaning over your shoulder and dictating every move you must make, you've got to find the courage to make your own legs start to move. And that means you've got to choose. If, if somebody else is giving you the directions, hey, walk this direction, take 20 steps and then hang a right, it's not you making the choices. Now, I understand there's a disconnect. There are people who aren't really familiar with but, but what what is the, the proper uh, what's the proper purpose of government? What's the proper role of government? What are its proper rightful limits? Well, that's something that each of us can learn. All I'm asking you to consider is, are you not the best expert as to how to live your life? My answer would be, hell, yes, you are. Of course you're the best expert. 
Politicians don't want you to think that way. They want you to look to them, maybe with a bowl in your hand. Please, sir, may I have more? (laughs) Caller, welcome to the show. Oh, yes. More government's always an option. Hey, we're we're coming up on the break here. Can you hang with me through the break, and and then I can get you your comment? You bet. Okay. Stay with me. 801-331-8113 is the number. Let's talk about this a little bit. What can an average person do to further liberty? There's a lot that you can do and that we should be doing. But I can tell you one of the first things is stop asking permission. May I do this? Because the system that wants to rule your life will never give you permission to defy it or to act without its its explicit uh, direction. Trusted voices of truth and insight. This is the Loving Liberty Radio Network. Hey, welcome back to Loving Liberty. 801-331-8113. Let's go right back to the phone. Jared is standing by. Jared, thanks for your patience. Tell me what's on your mind today. Well, my friend, we truly do have government by the consent of the governed. Silence is consent, and millions of people just let stuff happen. They they don't speak up. They just let it happen. West Valley PD threatened to put me in cuffs the other night because I was hurting their feelings. Okay, tell they me tell, a, tell me what was going on. Well, they had this this I didn't know $500 cars still existed in our current economic situation, but I think I saw a $500 car. This was barely moving down the road. Young guy, he didn't look like he had much more than $500 on his way to work. He didn't have his tags up to date. So the king's men had him pulled over. And they towed his ride. They caught, they stole his horseless carriage. The King's men, the West Valley Slave Patrol, stole his carriage. And I said, that's absolutely wicked. That's totally wrong. That's not cool at all. Why don't you guys produce something other than pain and suffering, get a job in the private sector? And then I started reading scriptures. I, I taught them about John the Bad. Oh, yeah. You know, anytime I talk to cops, I always ask them, you know, statistically, half of you guys are members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Would any of you like to admit it? Step forward? No? Nobody? Okay. Well, let me remind you, hypothetically, what your, what some of your covenants are. And then I, I talk about their covenants as a Christian. But John the Baptist, he made the cops mad. And in Luke chapter 3, they got mad, and they demanded of him, What shall we do to be saved? And he said, Do harm to no man neither accuse any other falsely, and be content with your wages. And then you look down at the Greek footnote, and it's Greek for extortion. And uh, the Lord and the Jewish police were going to, the Jewish police were going to stone the adulteress. But the Lord spoke to their spirit and their conscience, and they all moped away, feeling like the, you know, the dirtbags they were. If our public servants felt like dirt bags for doing dirty deeds, they'd stop. But silence is our consent. 
and they think they're special. They think they're the answer instead of the problem. You know what makes me sad? I mean, look, the the officers can at least hide behind the look. I'm just doing my job, just doing my duty. Um, excuse, but there are there's no shortage of people who will grasp for any reason to believe that now. Brian, Jared, it was a good thing that they ticketed this guy who didn't have his car registered and, you know, was driving a $500 car. Um, they'll, they'll try to justify the fact that the actions taken by these officers made his situation worse. They didn't solve any problems. They just compounded his existing problems. And, and somewhere in there, they're looking for, I don't know, safety. Well, you know, that car could have just exploded for no reason whatsoever. It's a good thing that they did that to him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, because cars explode all the time. Sure, well, of, it's it's Stockholm yeah. Syndrome at work. Just give me some well, reason to believe that this is all okay. Yeah. They have family in the business, and it is a business. It's a trillion-dollar-a-day business. Trillion. I said trillion. All the courts in the land. The number is remarkable. Those are David Strait figures. He's been to court many, many, many times. He's done the research. So, so tell me, tell me, what was it? What was it that almost landed you in in cuffs when you started quoting scripture? Oh, I I put my hand in my pocket because it was cold, Mm -hmm. and slave patrol gets scared. They get triggered. Oh, get your hands out of your pockets! Well, you got your hands in 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 people's pockets all day long. You can't let someone have their uh, their hand in their own pocket. You're gonna get scared. You're gonna bulldoze me over because. I guess God didn't give me the right in West Valley to put my hand in my pocket. But you guys have your hands in people's pockets all day long because you don't work in the private sector. That really stings. That really stings. You are a bold individual. And I'm I'm grateful for... I'm I'm grateful for... No, I I think you're you're being bold about it, but I I wish more people had reached that that point where they're just like, look, I'm going to say the painful truth. And, and I don't care if it hurts your feelings, and I don't care if it puts me at risk, um, because it's got to be said. Somebody's got to be the bad conscience. And, Jared, I'm grateful it's you. I wish I had your courage. I'm working my way there, but I'm not there yet. Well, I'm still pretty well behaved. That's why I'm not locked up. But when, right. you, when, you, when you go by, if they're doing something naughty, give them a big thumbs down. Get a job. No, you can't date my sister. Get out of here. <laughs> Get out of here. Get a job. Love you know, your neighbor. I have to I have to say this because I do have friends who are in law enforcement who are good people who when they pull somebody over who, for instance, maybe their registration is expired or something like that, will look for some way to solve the problem without compounding the problem. But this puts them at odds often with their higher ups and sometimes with their fellow officers where they're seen as, you know, whose side are you really on? And I didn't realize they were supposed to see it as an us versus them proposition. But that seems to be consistent with the training these days. Well, Eric Mutsos is no longer employed with Salt Lake City PD. He he left the reservation one too many times. Well, yep you you can't uh, you can't speak the truth without risking uh, suffering for your beliefs, and unfortunately, Eric knows about that in spades. Now he has a job in the private sector. Let's give him a round of applause, ladies and gentlemen. Well, he's and and not only a job, but the guy is tremendously successful at what he does. Although I, I'll tell you, in the, in the conversations I've had with Eric, um, I really believe he was one of those guys who, who became a police officer for the right reasons, thinking, I'm going to help people. This is going to, oh, sure. this is going to contribute to the betterment of society. And, and he talks about what a bitter realization it was that um, his higher-ups expected him. You go out there and you find reasons. You find some yeah. reason to hook people up or, you know, no gold star for you. Yeah. 
Yeah, most people join for the right reasons, but then they get into it, and then they realize I've invested a lot of them like the government pension, let's be honest. They're 15 years into their career of public service, robbing people and keeping them in line and making sure all their taxes get paid. And they're not, they don't want to get out. They don't want to lose their welfare check for the rest of their life, to put it bluntly and truthfully. Well, I, appreci- I appreciate your call, and I appreciate your willingness to stand up and, and risk being unpopular <laughs> but for, for speaking things that need to be said. My, uh, my, my, my cousin doesn't talk to me too much anymore. He's a, a, a guard at the plantation, Salt Lake County Jail. We don't really talk like we used to. But I'm always open. No, I, I know you are. And I think your heart's in the right place. Thanks again, man. Thanks, Brian. Okay, 801-331-8113. Let me give you an example, again, of, uh, of what it looks like when, uh, when the government doesn't look at us as servants for whom it exists to protect and guarantee our God-given rights, but rather as cattle to be managed, or worse, as potential criminals who just haven't been caught. This is a story out of, uh, I think this was out of Boston. Let's see. Uh... The headline is, Like I Was Mugged, a woman says agents took $82,000 from her at the airport. This was Rebecca Brown, who was flying from Pennsylvania to Massachusetts with her father's life savings when agents seized $82,000 in cash from her. Now, if you have a low threshold for, uh, for nonsense, I'm going to tell you, this one may trigger you because it, it definitely <laughs> it set me off when I, when I heard this as well. But uh, here's, here's the story. So a Massachusetts woman has filed a class action lawsuit against the Drug Enforcement Administration and Transportation Security Administration. Rebecca Brown says she had taken about $82,000 in cash from her father's Pennsylvania home. He's an elderly man. She was bringing it to Massachusetts because the time had come for her to take care of or take charge of his finances. But the money was confiscated before her flight from Pittsburgh. Brown, who lives outside Boston, says the government took my dad's life savings. It was like I was mugged on the street. Now, Brown's father had kept the money in a Tupperware container in his home. He was, she was bringing it back to Massachusetts in a carry-on bag to open a joint bank account. The TSA agent said, what's this? And called another agent over, Brown said. I said, that's cash. I'm taking it from Pennsylvania to Massachusetts. Now, she explained the circumstances to several supervisors at the airport, and she says an agent with the DEA and a state police trooper called her dad. Then the trooper turned to me and said, your stories don't match. I'm seizing the cash. My friends, this is what uh, asset forfeiture will get you. Brown says her father couldn't hear the questions well and didn't understand them. So now a class action lawsuit has been filed by the Institute for Justice against the DEA and the TSA, not only to get the money back, but to stop what her lawyers call a common and unconstitutional practice of seizing money at airports. Dan Albin, a senior attorney with the Institute for Justice, says it's based solely on the suspicion of law enforcement that someone is somehow involved in crime, even if there's no evidence whatsoever. Often just the presence of cash is enough for law enforcement to be suspicious. Now, I don't know if it'll surprise you, but, you know, there are no limits to how much cash someone can travel with domestically. And Brown says this is a blatant abuse of power just to reach into someone's pocket without any cause and say, I'm going to take that. Now, conveniently, both the DEA and TSA say, well, we can't comment on pending litigation. 
But just remember, neither Brown nor her father have been charged with any crime, and their attorney says there's nothing in their background that would warrant federal officials to be suspicious. Doesn't matter. You have something we want. We're taking it. Does that sound like we are the government to you? Hey, welcome back to Loving Liberty, 801-331-8113, if you'd like to join the conversation. And I hope you will. One of the toughest parts of what I do is trying to, to narrow down all the various things that I would like to share with you. It's tough because, you know, it sounds like, well, you got two hours a day. I mean, come on, man. How much how much do you need? But there's just there are so many great takes on what's happening around us. Uh, among the things that I was hoping to share, I don't know if I'm going to be able to get to them. Uh, one was... Uh, Talking about the American dream. What is it? How can you say what what exactly is the American dream? And are there any politicians or candidates that love America and her people and would actually uh, believe in the dream and the majesty of America, not just in the past, but also in the present and for the future? I can't answer that for you, but I think it's a good question to ask. Another article was, could the Bible return to American public education? Now, this gets some people's uh, knickers in a twist because, well, now, what about separation of church and state? But do you realize the Bible was a foundational part of education for many, many generations of Americans from the founding of the actually from even before the founding of the country until uh, well into the 20th century? I believe it was in the 1940s, the late 1940s, when the Bible was taken out of schools by a court decision. 1962 or 63 was Engel versus Vital, which removed prayer from the classroom. But there was a time when the Bible was an essential part of American literature. Now, I'm not trying to downgrade it by referring to it as literature. Some people held it and, and rightfully still do hold it as a book of Scripture, as God's revealed truths and records kept by people of, of his dealings with, you know, the Israelites and, and of course, uh, through the New Testament. In fact, if, if, if you were to ask me, did America have a national book in the sense that, uh, for instance, Shakespeare's folio was uh, kind of the national book of England. You know, his countrymen uh, have relied on his plays for a long, long time. And that you could you could safely say that, yeah, I think Shakespeare's influence and, and the, the, the thought that he provoked made his works the national book of England. Well, I think for the United States, there's a time when the Bible was the national book, not because everybody was a, you know, believing Christian or even for that matter, a practicing Jew, if they only took the Old Testament part of it. But simply because in a time where where books were rare or, for instance, as, as the nation expanded westward and people had very limited space to carry their most precious belongings, sometimes they had to make a choice. They couldn't transport a whole library of books unless they were very wealthy. So that meant they had to choose carefully what reading material they would take with them. And for a very long time, as the nation grew, the Bible and, coincidentally, Shakespeare's folio were the two most common pieces of literature that you were likely to find in people's possession. Why? Well, uh, in a nutshell, because you could go back to each of them as classic works of literature and find truth. Each time you read them to me, that's that's the best definition I've ever heard of what makes a classic a classic 
It's the kind of work that you can pick up, and no matter where you are in your life, according to your understanding and your experience, you will still find something worthwhile, something that teaches you something you didn't know before, even if you've read it a dozen times before. Is that a fair depiction? If it's not, call me up and you can set me straight, 801-331-8113. My point is just simply this. Even though the founders wisely kept church and state separate in the sense that they did not create a theocracy, the influence of the Bible is found in many, many aspects of our American heritage. You can look, you can find it within the, the very system of government that they set up. Now, again, not that they were setting up a theocracy, but they borrowed from biblical ideas. David Barton from Wall Builders, I think, does a marvelous job of outlining this. If you've ever seen the video, America's Godly Heritage, he connects the dots very well. Where did the founders get this idea for, you know, a branch that uh, is, is the king or the executive, a branch that is the judge or judicial, a branch that is the uh, lawmakers? And he can quote you the Old Testament scripture that says, you know, the Lord will be our king. The Lord will be our judge. The Lord will be our lawgiver. Translated into practical terms, that amounted to separating the powers of government, which it turns out was a pretty wise idea, at least back when it used to be observed. So I don't know if we could even have a national book at this point, given that uh, actual real books, you know, with paper and pages and everything have kind of gone the way of the dinosaur. Everybody's into screens, but... Sometimes I think a national book is, is something that could, could bring us at least to a common understanding. Even if we don't all understand it exactly the same, you know, there's a reason why when in, in court a person was asked to give testimony in a courtroom that they used to put their hand on the Bible and swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. There's a reason why when you were in court and you needed someone to come and attest to your character, they would call your a member of your clergy to come and talk about. This is the kind of person that Brian is. Nowadays, we call in a psychologist or a psychiatrist. Someone who can say, well, based upon the uh, tests that I administered and what Mr. Hyde said about the ink blots that I showed him, you know, this is, this is what uh, I have determined. Man, I hope that day never comes because I don't even want to know what the ink blots say about me. But I'm asking you to open your mind to the possibility that uh, when we had a national book, when the Bible, for better or for worse, was a cornerstone of American education, even if it was just teaching kids how to read, there were truths and there were, there were standards that came through loud and clear. And I know we're supposed to believe everything that came before us was backwards, wrong, superstitious, and stupid. Therefore, we must reject it. But I think there was a stability that is undeniable from those times when, when it was a, a, a welcome part of many people's lives. Not to be forced on them by government, not to, you know, that everybody was marched at bayonet point to Sunday school every week, but simply because it was something familiar to most people. You know, the family Bible had a place in many homes. In fact, uh, my friend Joe Carey has a remarkable Bible rescue museum in, in his office in, uh, in Ogden. And it's a remarkable thing when you start to see some of these Bibles from the 1700s and the 1800s and even the early part of the 20th century. And you recognize that this is where families kept their history. 
marriages were recorded. This is before the days of marriage licenses where you had to go to the state and say, please, would you recognize this union? Marriages were performed by whatever authority, and then they were recorded in the family Bible. Genealogies were recorded in the family Bible. Births and deaths, christenings and baptisms and so forth. And as you see some of these old Bibles, you recognize that this is where many families kept their history. That's kind of gone by the wayside. I know things change, and I'm not trying to turn the clock back 100 or 200 years. But I think it would be very interesting if the Bible could return to American public education. And, and rather than, than insist why it should be a part of American public education, I'll tell you what I would really like to see is the government get out of education entirely. Because then you would actually have a choice. If you want your child to be instructed not only in reading, writing, and arithmetic, but also uh, to be instructed in spiritual matters as well, you could choose from the various private schools that would pop up offering what people were looking for. Or if that wasn't your thing, well, we have a school here, but we don't have any kind of spiritual instruction. Well, that's what I'm looking for. At least you'd have the choice. Under the public education model where the state is using compulsory means, you will send your kids to school or they will be charged with truancy or you, their parents, may actually be jailed for not sending them to this government-run system. You don't really have that choice. Yeah, I get it. People can homeschool. They still have to go to government, though, and seek permission just to, to educate their own children. Get government out of the schooling. Let's see, a, let's see a strict separation of school and state, and I think you would see the state of American education rise noticeably. Competition would show us very quickly. Where is the better education to be found? What is the better learning environment? Who can can work with these kids? And the best part of all is it would not be a one-size-fits-all approach, which is unfortunately what our public schools kind of have to be. And then you throw in various lobbies, the teachers' unions, and and various, you know, uh, political action groups that want to make sure, well, our education has to reflect, you know, a proportionate amount of LGBT, you know, heroic and historic figures basically whatever is popular at the moment in government is likely what you're going to be seeing taught to the students within that system. And I don't feel one bit bad for telling you a lot of what's being taught to these students is very anti-God, anti-family, anti-freedom, because it's meant to favor those who are in power, to build consensus and consent among the governed. All right. Well, I feel better for getting that off my chest. Thank you so much for tuning in today. This is Loving Liberty. Stand by. The Kate Daly Show is on the way next. Welcome to the Loving Liberty Radio Network. 